now that California's electoral circus is over, and we're all settling in for the reign of the Terminator, B-Side takes a look at the weird world of politics. You'll hear about a soccer match between anarchists and communists, what happens when your long-lost cousin decides to run for governor, and where our elected officials go after hours to drown their sorrows. Also, you'll meet a political figure who's one foot tall, wears cowboy boots, and talks about tax cuts. Either you're for us, or you're against us. Yes, it's the talking George W. Bush doll, as on the record, flips to the B-side. When I was in sixth grade, I won a national writing contest with a poem about the Constitution. I was one of 250 impressionable minds chosen to be honored at the White House by Ronald Reagan and friends. It was a pretty unusual introduction to politics, and I can't say it made an especially deep impression on me. What I remember most is that it was so hot in the Rose Garden while Reagan made his congratulatory speech that someone actually passed out. And after we each shook hands with Secretary of Education William Bennett, there was an ice cream social. Now that was fun. Okay, you're probably wondering what I wrote to be invited to such a prestigious event. It went something like this. What the Constitution Means to Me, by Mia Lobel. Just think, a piece of paper, once a living tree. It seems so simple, though it means so much. To me, the Constitution means freedom. People as free as a butterfly, a leaf floating on the wind, a cloud. Free to speak and write, share your words with the world, able to share feelings without fear of trouble, no trouble at all. It goes on. I'll spare you the rest. While my trip to the White House may not have had the impact on me the politicians of the day would have liked, I do still believe we're free to speak and write whatever we like. And we're going to take full advantage on B-Side this month as we look at the side of politics you won't get watching C-SPAN. In Sacramento, most of the arguing and compromising that we call politics goes on inside the Capitol, that big white-domed building pictured on postcards. But located just a few blocks away is another place where the state's business gets done. It's a little pub called Simon's. Jeff Chorney paid a visit to find out why the dimly lit Chinese restaurant and bar is where the political machine goes for lubrication. Walk into Simon's Bar and Restaurant in downtown Sacramento, and the first thing you'll notice are the framed 8x10s of California politicians covering the walls. They show a decade's worth of movers and shakers posed in the bar, sometimes over empty plates of food or with their arms around colleagues. Many of them look a little sweaty and red-faced. Whether that's from working too hard or drinking too much, it's hard to tell. Pictured with many of them is Simon Chan himself, who on most nights also tends bar. Simon says politicians visit his bar for the same reasons most people go to bars, to forget their troubles. They really do need a place for them to go and relax and feel comfortable and be, be themselves, it's, uh, you know, not as like when they're in the capital with suits and ties and everything so formal. Simon's customers aren't just elected officials. He also attracts all the men and women that make California's political machine move. There are the staff members, the hired hands who do a lot of the grunt work, and then there's another group that's just as important, some would argue more so. My name is Ben Lubon, and I'm a lobbyist. 
Lobbyists are hired by organizations and interest groups to try to influence legislators. They're the professional schmoozers, if you will. Luban lobbies transportation issues. He says it can be tough to get attention inside the Capitol hallways, but at Simon's it's different. You know, during the session, you know, every table, this place is jam-packed and everybody's here. So you can actually see more people here than you can walking the halls. And that's, and that's a good, you know, you can do more influencing here than you can do sometimes trying to work through a staffer. Today, Luban's not after anyone's ear. Instead, he's smoking cigarettes out on Simon's covered back patio, something a lot of people say is their favorite part of the bar. In Sacramento, it pays to know who hangs out where. There's Chops, an upscale steakhouse near the Capitol, and Tootsie's, where one powerful state senator is known to enjoy the occasional frozen yogurt. Simon's wasn't always on this short list of places to see and be seen. Well, in those days, it was uh, very quiet, almost nobody here. Kind of, kind of a well-kept little secret. Great food, good prices, and good company. That's Brett Granlund, a former state assemblyman who's now, you guessed it, a lobbyist. To explain how Simons became a political hangout, some people point to Attorney General Bill Lockyer. He started coming to the bar when he was working his way up through the state assembly and senate. Lockyer's reputation for doing business outside his office is well known. He was one of the lawmakers who worked on the infamous napkin deal in 1987. As the story goes, Lockyer and other lawmakers were hanging out at a nearby restaurant and granted tobacco companies immunity from lawsuits with a deal sketched out on a napkin. Simon tells of another deal at his place when he got a phone call from Willie Brown, arguably the most powerful and longest serving state assembly speaker ever. He called me on the phone and asked me who's who's over here and tell me to tell the members to stay stay here and he's on the way here and they try to work out a deal that who would take over his job before he stepped down. Of course Simon has his own opinions, but he's done his best to make his bar nonpartisan. Granland, the assemblyman turned lobbyist, calls Simon's a demilitarized zone. One way Simon tries to appeal to all political types is by keeping his drink prices low. And Simon says a little liquor can work wonders on high-strung politicians and staffers. I think once you're having a, a drink, and, and everybody will feel loosened up. And that's the best time to uh, negotiate, I guess. Huh. Simon says he's never seen a politician drink too much and do something embarrassing inside his bar. Maybe that's true, or maybe Simon's discretion is another reason why they keep coming back. For B-Side, I'm Jeff Chorney in Sacramento. Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your troubles sure would help a lot. The kind of wheeling and dealing that goes on at places like Simon's isn't always pretty, but it's how democracy works. But what if the government made all of its major decisions in secret, without consulting the public? And what if we, the people, had no clue this was going on? This idea has inspired movies like The Manchurian Candidate and TV shows like The X-Files. 
It's also spawned a small movement of Americans who are convinced that the government itself was responsible for the biggest atrocity in U.S. history. Dave Gilson and Ben Temshin take a look at the September 11th skeptics. I'm Frank Running Horse. I've been an activist uh, ever since the Vietnam War. Frank Running Horse has never been inclined to trust the government. He's a longtime labor organizer, and he also describes himself as a Kennedy assassination researcher. So it's not too surprising that when the Bush administration said that Osama bin Laden was the mastermind behind September 11th, he wasn't buying it. I, be, I started thinking about this and started adding two and two, and then I started following closely the newspapers and the press reports every day. And every day, I find more and more connecting of the dots, linking the uh, intelligence community to the hijackers. And I have mountains of evidence. Running Horse is part of a group called the 9-11 Truth Alliance, which is trying to get to the bottom of what it calls the cover-up of what really happened that day. Uh, what we want the Truth Alliance is, uh, meets every couple of weeks in a community center in San Francisco. When I show up, about 10 people are there, mostly middle-aged men and a couple of women. Running Horse kicks things off. There's some uh, recent relevations that have come out in the news in the last week, since our last meeting, in terms of uh, um, corroborating our, our theories. The members of the Truth Alliance say they don't really know what happened on September 11th. But that hasn't stopped them from coming up with theories. Lots of theories. Some think that the Bush administration knew in advance, or that the CIA or the military were behind it. Others think that the Saudis or the Israelis were involved. These competing theories can get pretty complicated and contradictory. But the members of the Truth Alliance share a common belief that the official story is wrong. What we all have agreed on is that we've been told lies, there's been cover-up and lies, and we all agree it was an inside job. The exact nature of the inside job, there's some disagreement on, okay? But we all agree that we've been told lies and that the official story doesn't wash. We all seek to uncover the truth, and we want to hold those accountable responsible. If the Truth Alliance is right, then we're talking about the most elaborately planned conspiracy in American history. Blowing the lid off of this conspiracy will require lots of patience and lots of planning. From what I saw, let's just say the Truth Alliance has its work cut out for itself. You guys, you have to have some kind of consistency. I'm telling people to come to these meetings, you just hold them and don't hold them. Part of the problem is that being a 9-11 skeptic is a pretty lonely job. So the Alliance is planning a rally in downtown Oakland. Vince Silvey hopes it will get the word out. I think what's important here is that we keep this in the public consciousness. And by having, having this event, we're showing the ruling elite that we're concerned, that we don't like it, and we don't like what they're up to, and we, we think they're up to something illegal, something real criminal. Getting the powers that be to listen is hard enough. But as one woman in the group notes, there's a long way to go before even ordinary people start listening. And I've tried to get people to read things and, or listen to uh, tapes, and it's almost impossible to get people to do it. You have to browbeat them day after day before they'll pay attention. So why aren't more people paying attention? Americans, after all, tend to be pretty suspicious of government. Most believe that politicians are power-hungry, corrupt, and hypocritical. But there's a big difference between thinking that the governor's a jerk and believing that the U.S. government was behind something as horrible as 9-11. That's a leap of faith even the most cynical Americans just aren't willing to take. For the 9-11 skeptics, that's just further proof that the government has pulled the wool over our eyes. The day of the rally has arrived. It's Tuesday, October 7th, which is the second anniversary of the day the U.S. launched its campaign in Afghanistan. However, it's also the day of the California recall election. 
And unless Arnold Schwarzenegger makes a surprise appearance, the Truth Alliance won't be stealing any headlines. In fact, the only member of the press to show up is B-Side's Ben Temshin. At 12.15, there's nobody here. They are very optimistic. But Ben wasn't the only one watching. Two gentlemen, short-cut hair, jeans, sitting, collecting material. As soon as I came over and identified myself as a reporter, they got up from one of the benches, walked inside the federal building. Not a word, not even eye contact. Eventually, about 25 people attend. They carry signs with slogans like, Bush lied, thousands died, listen to a few speeches, and then they head home. Frank Running Horse isn't discouraged. He knows he's going against the grain, but that's what Americans have always done. First thing I learned when I was in school is I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. One thing that we were taught is that truth is something valuable. So that's why, we're, that's why we call ourselves the Truth Alliance, because we want to get the facts out and say, here are the facts, explain them. You may think that Running Horse and his fellow 9-11 skeptics are conspiracy theorists or paranoid cranks, but they're also hardcore idealists. Despite their belief that our government is controlled by a cabal of evil fascists, they cling to the idea that a few citizens can change things by taking to the streets and speaking their minds. They've got the right to express themselves, and they're using it. The only problem is, everyone else has the right to completely ignore them. For B-Side, I'm Dave Gilson. accompaniment in this section by none other than Attorney General John Ashcroft. 
I'm Mia Lobel, and this month we're talking about politics. During the run-up to the California gubernatorial recall election, people, usually non-Californians, liked to joke that everyone in the state was running for governor or was related to someone who was. In reality, there were only 135 candidates, and most of us had never heard of 95% of them. So imagine commentator Jason Grunbaum's surprise when he found out not only was he related to one of the candidates, but that she had become a household name. It all started with a phone call. My mom called me on Labor Day. Did you know that you have a cousin running for governor in California, she asked. Oh God, we're related to Arnold, I thought. No, she explained. It was my cousin, Mary Ellen. Oh, the ballet dancer, I said. Well, not anymore, my mom said. She goes by the name of Mary Carey, and now she's a porn star. Daddy and I went to her website and made a campaign donation. Talk a little hey, bit. Mary Ellen, Ellen say hi. Light. Say hello. Mary Ellen, say hello, Jason. Say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I thought you... This shyness won't last long. I thought something oh, was going to no. over the... Enjoy <laughs> and cherish it. Sing. Sure enough, Mom was right. It looked like Mary's shyness didn't last long. In these home videos from 1987, eight-year-old Mary Ellen shows off her Barbie doll. Then she sets up one of her Christmas presents a Fisher-Price mic and app set, and has the whole family singing Christmas carols. I didn't see much of Mary Ellen growing up. I was eight years older than her and lived up north. My grandma would spend a lot more Christmases with Mary Ellen in Fort Lauderdale, who by then was a ballet prodigy. She had to quit later because, well, parts of her body became too big. Grandma had heard rumors last year from Mary Ellen's former in-laws that she had started stripping. When the governor's story broke, Grandma went right down to the county library to check out Mary's website. She couldn't get MaryCarry.com to load, so she asked the nice young man at the desk for help. As racy photos started coming up, the young man asked Grandma if she was sure this was the site she was looking for. Yes, of course, my grandmother beamed. I know that girl. Mom, I'm not student of the month anymore. You're not student of the month Last month, I had dinner with Mary in New York the night before she went on the Howard Stern show. It was the first time I'd seen her in four years. I felt the dilemma of the absentee relative faced with a sudden celebrity in the family. How could I show Mary some family support without coming off as an opportunist? She finally showed up with her PR guy, who described himself as Mary's suitcase pimp, which I later learned is an industry term for a male hanger-on to a female porn star. Mary kept saying how great it was that her PR guy, like her Grandpa Steve, was of Ukrainian origin. We talked about the Christmases with Grandpa Steve and the family. Later that night, we met a couple of Mary's high school friends for drinks at the Ritz-Carlton. Shocking how some people change from high school into real life. Really shocking. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're so real life. Mary wasn't too interested in talking about her run for governor. Instead, she said how happy she was to have her close high school friends, especially now. She also wanted to talk more about Grandpa Steve, who used to spoil her so much, Mary said, that if she saw cookies or something she'd like on TV, he'd go out and buy like 50 boxes for her. Porn stars weren't supposed to debate action heroes during the recall campaign. Mary insisted that she was a serious candidate, addressing gun control in her Pistols for Porn proposal, and offering to wire webcams throughout the governor's mansion. Mary wrote an op-ed piece for the LA Times, protesting her exclusion from the official debates. Howard Stern came to the rescue. While Mary was in the studio, Arnold phoned in from California. He wasn't expecting to be on the air with her, but Mary managed to get him to endorse gay marriage. 
and then he made a pass at her. And also, I want to say this, I hear that uh, Mary said that she wants to have sex with me. I did say that. I heard that. By the way, Arnold, you'd like to know this, Mary Carey has no underwear on. I oh, know, that's I fantastic. know how bad is that. You have no <laughs> underwear on, do you? Right, I was saying if no. I was not with Maria, we would make quite the political power couple. Right, you would do her, right? Uh, uh, right. If you Back in the single days, you would, uh, know, you would take you care of her at Gold's Gym. Yeah, right? of course. Of Are you course. kidding me? Of course. <laughs> This exchange aired a couple of weeks before the groping stories made headlines. Honey, you handled yourself great. This is something funny. I thought she did too. I was proud of Mary Ellen the night before, how she handled the attention of the waiters and various admirers. Even if Grandpa Steve might not have appreciated her career choice, Mary was clearly in control and having fun with the limelight. I'm sure lots of porn stars have big plans, but running for governor is rarely part of that plot. Even if running wasn't Mary's idea in the first place, she had the best platform and gave a more convincing performance than even Arnold. Anyway, I'm glad Mary and I got a chance to reunite, even if it took something as dirty as politics to do the trick. But there's something about Mary that they don't know. Mary, there's just something about Mary. Jason Grunbaum is a writer living in New York City. Mary Carey placed 10th in the recall election with 10,316 votes, just shy of Gary Coleman and Larry Flint. Our leaders are often accused of being fake, always looking perfectly made up and repeating the same empty platitudes over and over again. These aren't necessarily bad qualities in a politician, if that politician happens to be a 12-inch plastic action figure. A Texas company, Toy Presidents Incorporated, just released the limited edition George W. Bush talking action figure, a somewhat realistic version of the 43rd president. Dave Gilson recently went into the studio and produced this encounter with the pre-programmed plastic president. Mr. President, welcome to B-Side. Glad to be in the midst of patriots. It's funny, you look much bigger in person than you do in photographs. <clears throat> anyway, when someone presses your American flag lapel pin, you respond with one of 25 different sound bites. Now, I know our listeners are eager to hear what you have to say about any number of pressing topics. So I'll open the floor to you. What's on your mind today? Double taxation is bad for our economy. Double taxation is wrong. I can honestly say that's the first time I've ever met a doll with an opinion on tax policy. Seeing as we're in tough economic times, it was refreshing to see that you're on sale for just $29.95. That's pretty affordable for a talking action figure. I strongly believe we need to make sure that consumer confidence stays high by giving people more of their own money back. The most important indicator of our economic strength is the growing skill and efficiency of the American worker. It's funny that you should mention the skill of America's workers, since you are, after all, manufactured in the People's Republic of China. Do you fear that too many of America's jobs in the presidential action figure sector are being exported overseas? The less reliant we are on foreign sources of the president of the United States, the better off we are in America. I'd like to ask you, as a man of action, how is the war on terrorism going? This isn't a Republican war, this isn't a Democrat war, this is an American war. This great nation will lead the world, and we will be successful. You recently got a very warm reception at the G.I. Joe convention in San Diego. It was very stirring to see a room full of little army men applaud your arrival in a remote control helicopter. Do you have a message for America's military action figures? Our nation is deeply grateful to all who serve in uniform. 
some have said that a man of your stature isn't fit to lead the country in such a difficult time. What do you say to that? Either you're for us, or you're against us. Powerful words. Powerful words indeed. Changing subjects for a moment. I'm very impressed by the level of detail in your outfit. For our listeners, I'd like to mention that you're wearing a hand-tailored blue polyester suit, a red silk tie, and plastic cowboy boots stamped with the presidential seal. But in the name of full disclosure, I have to ask, boxers or briefs? Mind if I take a peek? I urge you to be that one person. All right, let's see here. For the record, the limited edition George W. Bush talking action figure is wearing stars and stripes boxer shorts. Well, our time is almost out. But before we go, do you care to tell us where you're headed next? Rumor has it you're headed to a campaign fundraiser at Malibu Barbie's mansion. I'm ahead to Crawford after tonight. Mr. President, thank you for joining us. I ask for you to pray for this great nation, and may God bless America. You've been listening to an exclusive interview with the George W. Bush talking action figure. I'm Dave Gilson. You can see photos of their interview and listen to past shows on our website, www.bside-radio.org. There's a cliche, politics makes strange bedfellows. Throughout history, people of different political stripes have found ways to unite behind a common goal. But anarchists and communists have always preferred revolution to compromise. There's a long history of conflict between the two groups. But some Bay Area activists are trying to change that. And they've chosen an unusual place to settle the score, on the soccer field. Erica Kelly found out that politics can sometimes make strange sporting events. When I first heard that anarchists and communists were organizing a three-game soccer tournament in Berkeley, I had certain ideas about how it would play out. I pictured their political idiosyncrasies coming alive on the playing field, anarchists running amok, disregarding rules and referees, and communists covering the field in lockstep. But when I arrive, the players are warming up, passing the ball, and getting along pretty well. Steve Williams plays for the communist team. Even though you would expect maybe that the communist team would be more organized, rigidly organized, everybody sort of running around on the same page, and then the anarchists sort of running around on sort of wildly disparate plays. But in fact, I think both of the teams have been playing uh, very interesting and sort of traditional soccer. He's right. The play is traditional, right down to the coordinated jerseys. The communists, known as the left-wing football club, wear red jerseys with a star and a fist on the front and team numbers on the back. The anarchists call themselves the Kronstadt Football Club, after a group of early 20th century anarchists. They wear black jerseys, emblazoned with an anarchy A, a soccer ball, and a black star. Jerseys? Numbers? It's all so, so orderly. Where's their revolutionary spirit? Yeah, Dana. Nice touch. It turns out that spirit is alive and well, more off the field than on. The Kronstadt and left-wing clubs were born earlier this year during the protests against the Iraq war. Anarchist and communist activists found themselves in the street together, and Williams says they were looking for ways to build on that unity. 
what we realized is that it's very important for us to begin trying to build a movement for global justice and to overlook some of the differences that we do have. And so we thought that this, playing soccer together, would actually give us a good opportunity to be able to develop relationships that then stretched beyond our political relationships and hopefully would ultimately have a positive impact for our political work. The players' politics do inform the way they play, just not the ways I expected. Ingrid Chapman plays for Kronstadt. I think it's a misconception that anarchists are against organization. Anarchists are for organization. It's a different kind of organization. It's organizing where you empower as many people to be leaders as possible. You empower people to direct themselves and to work with each other in, you know, in cooperation. And ultimately, I think you have more commitment from people and um, to the team. Teams have already played two games of their three-game series. In a scenario familiar to many protesters, the first game ended in a tie when the police kicked them off the field for playing without a permit. And the anarchists won the second game 4-2. to two. Apparently the competition got pretty heated and some players got hurt. Jason Negromosales says in the spirit of restoring unity, the teams are playing a scrimmage tonight. It's a competition in that we're playing games against each other, but at the same time we're trying to create a culture that's not so aggressive, uh, sort of male, macho, get up there and bang it out with people, um, you know, run people over if they're smaller than you type of thing, you know, we're trying to be respectful. I'm all for unity and respect, but I've played sports and I know that the desire to win can sometimes be overpowering. So I ask some of the players, are there bragging rights involved with the tournament? Here's what Ingrid from Kronstadt and David Kahn, who plays for Left Wing, have to say. Bragging rights? I mean, we did win the last game, which was great. But <laughs> we want to build unity, but we also we want to play the game, and the game is a competitive game. So. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't want to say too much because we're down in the series, a tie and a loss. So, you know, I think I think everybody would like to be on the winning team, but that's not really what we're out here for. So. There is one moment when the game does meet my expectations. Chaos reigns when a guy carrying an illegible cardboard sign runs into the middle of the game, and he's not too happy when the players try to coax him to the sidelines. Okay, then. See what you've created. See what you've created. I wonder if he's a fan of the anarchists, but both teams quickly disavow any alliance with him. A player named Malachi gives me the lowdown on the intruder's offbeat political message. I believe his cosmos don't wear underwear, actually, if you're wondering. <laughs> I'm not sure he's going to have any luck starting a revolution with that philosophy. These players have bigger things in mind. Standing on the sidelines, I'm Erica Kelly for B-Side. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> There's only two teams in this town And you must follow one or the other Let us win let them lose, not the other way round in a northern As we close today's show, we'd like to leave you with the music and words of Steve Vaus. This is We Must Take America Back. The American dream has become a nightmare. of the time on cardboard on corners in town There's a cancer cult crime in our cities and an unspoken fear We're on our way down 
That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew this month is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. B-Side will return on November 26th. In the meantime, On the Record is back November 12th. I'm Nia Lobel. Thanks for listening. Not and bleed us and take all our money and send it abroad.